This is Phantom Power. T-minus 60 seconds and counting. Start. Two, one. Boost to ignition and liftoff of the space shuttle Discovery. Welcome to another episode of Phantom Power. I'm Mac Haygood. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope your year is off to a good start. The New Year is a time of resolutions, and without even planning it, I think I've made a a resolution for myself. I have basically, by way of my calendar, resolved to do more episodes of this show than I originally planned. This kind of fast and loose, lightly edited interview approach has sort of given me the courage to book a lot of interviews, and I've already scheduled eight. So assuming my uh, student assistants can keep up with this uh, pace, (laughs) over the next 16 weeks, we will have a lot of really interesting interviews for you every two weeks. I've already got one recorded with radio scholar Carolyn Birdsall whose new book is called Radiophilia. And then after that, in February, I have an interview with my favorite audiobook narrator, Robin Miles. I am like freaking out. (laughs) I'm going to try not to fanboy it up too much, but uh, she is just an incredible actor and narrator. And I'm really thrilled that she was willing to come on the show. I'm a little nervous, but um, I'll get through that. Um, After that, we've got Uh, Joseph L. Clark, who has written a really fascinating cultural history on architectural acoustics. (laughs) Can I say that? Architectural acoustics uh, called Echoes Chambers. Then we've got literary agent and former publisher and vice president at Random House, Jane Von Maron, who's going to talk about publishing books for the public, um, particularly for scholars and sound scholars. Then we've got recent PhD from Princeton, Benjamin Lindquist, who um, I've been talking with a lot lately about how computers learn to talk. And so we're going to be talking about talking computers. That's going to be amazing. After that, University of Pittsburgh professor Michael C. Heller will be talking about his new book, Just Beyond Listening, Essays of Sonic Encounter. Somewhere in there, we're going to squeeze in Marie Thompson. We're still scheduling her, but we're definitely going to talk with affect theorist and noise theorist Marie Thompson. And then finally, sometime in May, we'll drop an interview with Northwestern professor Neil Verma, a great sound scholar, great radio scholar who just finished a new book on podcasting. So there's a lot of amazing stuff coming your way. Okay, so what's on deck for today? I'm actually speaking to you a little sooner than I initially promised. I didn't plan to have an episode ready for you until the end of this month or maybe the start of the next month, but something crossed my path that I thought would be great to share with you, and it all worked out, so here we are. Longtime listeners to this show may remember The World According to Sound. As I called them two years ago when I first featured them on Phantom Power, The World According to Sound is a team of two rogue audionauts who rebelled against the NPR mothership, Chris Hoff and Sam Harnett. 
These guys were tired of sound playing second fiddle to narrative on NPR, and they wanted to do something different. The World According to Sound began as a micro-podcast that held one unique sound under the microscope for 90 seconds each episode. Then it became something much more ambitious, a live sonic odyssey in eight-channel surround sound. I participated in a few of the online sessions that they started doing during the pandemic, um, which I sort of think of as this pandemic era surge of creativity in mediated togetherness that we saw. The idea was that you would kind of lie in bed with headphones on and for sighted people, an eye mask to help them really sink into the sonic experience. And you would go on this sonic journey based on a particular theme. It was happening live online. There was something slightly frightening about it, <laughs> but it, but there was also this really strong sense of imagined community. So it was an interesting dynamic where you felt kind of alone, but you also felt kind of together with people. And there was an online discussion afterwards, which really reinforced that sense of community. Well, since all of that, Chris Hoff and Sam Harnett have embarked on another project. For the past couple of years, they've been partnering with different universities to do something near and dear to my heart, translating humanities research into compelling sound-designed narrative podcasts. The first season was produced in partnership with the University of Washington, and it focused on different analytical methods and disciplines in the humanities close reading, deconstruction, translational analysis, black studies, material culture, disability studies. The second season just wrapped up. It's called Cosmic Visions, and it was produced in collaboration with Johns Hopkins University. And that's what we're going to hear an episode from today. Just this week, they dropped the last episode of season two, and now the entire thing is available on the World According to Sound website, which made me think, hey, this is a great opportunity to share this with you. And if you like it, you can go and listen to the entire thing. I wanted to draw your attention to it because turning humanities research and sound art into a sonic narrative experience was really the original mission of this podcast. Of course, this season I'm focused on developing my new book. So we've kind of switched to this straight ahead interview format. Um, but, you know, I've even written a scholarly book chapter on the topic of doing humanities podcasts. So I'm really thrilled to just hear people who are doing this so well. And I know many of you are interested in this area. So if you're not already a fan of Chris and Sam's work, check it out. And no spoilers, but I also wanted to share this particular episode because it provides one answer to the tricky question of how do you do a sonic explication of something that's entirely visual? Okay. So First, you're going to hear a little intro to this season that Sam and Chris made, and then you'll dive straight into one of the episodes from this season. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And I'll be talking to you two weeks from now when I present my interview with Carolyn Birdsall. T-minus 60 seconds and counting. In the 20th century, human beings reached outer space for the first time. Power at this time. Discovery is now running off its three onboard fuel cells. Coming up on a go for all the sequence start. But space exploration began long before the rockets and spacecraft of the modern era. We have been contemplating the universe for millennia, 
trying to make sense of what lies up in the heavens and what it can tell us about ourselves. This endeavor has left a deep impression on humanity, shaping everything from religion and philosophy to art and science. This is an account of that story. Start, two, one, boost ignition, and liftoff of the space shuttle discovery. From the beginning, ancient lunar mythologies, Babylonian astrology, Mayan cosmology, across different civilizations, Kepler's fiction, Shun's Bureau of Astronomy, Dante's Divine Comedy, and up to the modern era, landscapes of the Hubble telescope, man-made canals on Mars, sounds of gravitational waves, an audio series dedicated to astronomy. But this is not a linear tale of scientific progress. Discoveries and insights about the universe have come from the entire range of human experience. From mythology, religion, astrology, and the scientific method, to poetry, music, painting, science fiction, and mathematics. These different ways of viewing the world, these ways of knowing, form a web of inquiry that extends from Paleolithic humans documenting phases of the moon to doctoral students analyzing the frequencies of gravitational waves. This is Ways of Knowing. Season 2, Cosmic Visions. From the World According to Sound and Johns Hopkins University. Ways of Knowing Season 2, Cosmic Visions Episode 9, Picturing the Universe Booster hydraulic power units have started. April 24th, 1990 Sound suppression water system has started. NASA launches a telescope into space. T-minus 10, go for main engine start. We are go for main engine start. T-minus 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff of the Space Shuttle Discovery with the Hubble Space Telescope, our window on the universe. Mission Control Houston. A few weeks later, it sends its first image back to Earth a grainy black-and-white photo of a cluster of stars in the Carina constellation. The idea was to show how much better, how much clearer and sharper, the Hubble telescope could capture photographs when it didn't have the Earth's atmosphere in the way. And this photo was better, but not by much. Something was wrong. The Hubble Space Telescope, a project uh, that's became a, a symbol of a troubled space program when it was found to have a flawed mirror shortly after its launch. Public opinion of this $1.5 billion space project began to sour. NASA went looking for answers. The American taxpayer, I think, deserves to know what happened and more importantly, uh, how we keep it from happening again. 
The problem turned out to be a faulty mirror in the telescope. NASA astronauts finally corrected it in 1993, and then... Ecstasy. Breathtakingly beautiful images of nebulae, planets, galaxies, gases, dust, moons, the Milky Way, the most crystal clear pictures of the cosmos that humans had ever seen. These pictures, though, are a little tricky. See, it's one thing to take a picture of Jupiter. That planet's pretty close by, relatively speaking, and when the sun is shining on it, we can see its surface with our own eyes. The light from Jupiter falls on the visible end of the electromagnetic spectrum. All Hubble has to do is snap a photo of it, like a camera. Objects outside of our solar system are much, much farther away, and their sources of light can be different, infrared or ultraviolet, like in the gases and cosmic dust we find in nebulae. Humans can't see ultraviolet light, but the Hubble telescope can. A telescope is detecting information, photons of light, that are lie far beyond our vision. Elizabeth Kessler, lecturer at Stanford University in American Studies. It is extending our vision through technology, and a translation has to happen. The telescope lets us see things we normally can't. It sends us all the electromagnetic data about an object in space, and then we take that data and translate it into an image, which means that, in large part, most of the photos we see of outer space, they're pretty subjective. It's not actually what space looks like. It's been interpreted by a team of scientists and image processors. Kessler specializes in American visual culture, especially the role that aesthetics play in science. She wrote a book about the imagery of the Hubble telescope in 2012. She's interested in why the images of outer space that we have today look the way they do. So if this machine is enabling us to see, it doesn't have the same constraints that our physical eyes do. And so the Hubble images are a way to translate all of that data into something we can see. And so, with any translation, choices need to be made. The people responsible for those choices were part of the Hubble Heritage Project, a group of astronomers and image processors. Their goal was to make all this data from Hubble accessible to the general public. They ended up publishing around 400 images over 20 years. And for each of those images, the Heritage team had to comb through a mountain of visual data mere numbers and mathematical expressions on a page. After running it through several pieces of image processing software, the team would start to get an idea of how their visual representation ought to look. But there's still a lot of decisions to be made. One of those is addressing the contrast between light and dark. And much of the information within a data set isn't particularly interesting. But how do you boost these subtle distinctions that are visible on a computer screen? Because the data that Hubble sends back, it's monochromatic. It's all just one color. What choices do you make to bring out these distinctions between light and dark? 
And that results in this greater range, dynamic range between white, black, and all the grays in between. The other big thing is about color. Even though the pictures are monochromatic, image processors assign colors to the wavelengths of all the electromagnetic data. Red is assigned to the longest wavelength, um, blue to the, the shortest, green to whatever's in the middle which tells you some information about the physical properties of the nebula. And in the case of some of the Hubble images, it also results in an image that looks like something we might see in our world. An image we might see in our world. For Kessler, since human beings are making all these decisions on how pictures of outer space should end up looking, it's no surprise that they end up looking like things we know, things on Earth. If we think of the famous pillars of creation, the background is bluish green. These clouds of gas and dust are yellowish and brownish. So they look sort of like buttes in the desert southwest, kind of rising up from the bottom of the frame. Kessler's talking about the famous image from 1995, taken of the Eagle Nebula. It really does look like something out of Monument Valley or Arches National Park. Familiar, yet otherworldly. The Pillars of Creation was created by Jeff Hester and Paul Scowen, two American astronomers. These men, along with the other image processors on the Hubble Heritage Project, seem to favor saturated colors and high contrast. They turn the raw data from Hubble into images that resemble the majestic desert rock formations. And it struck me that these astronomical images resembled landscapes, and not just any landscapes, but a particular set of landscapes, those that uh, depict the American West in these kinds of very romantic ways that emphasize the sublimity of that scene that emphasized the kind of size and scale and drama and majesty of those landscapes. Outer space as an American landscape in the tradition of Thomas Moran, Albert Bierstadt, or Ansel Adams. In the 1800s, these artists were painting huge canyons, sheer cliffs, immense mountain ranges, pillars of rock, landscapes of the American West that are both awe-inspiring and alien. The images of these places, where few Americans in the 19th century had ever been, came to represent the idea of a frontier, of a vast, unknown world. I think it's a kind of easy place to go when you're looking for, here's how we want people to understand what we're observing. Again and again, there's all these kinds of ways in which the American West becomes a stand-in for space. When confronted with the incomprehensible, the vastness, emptiness, and enormity of outer space, there's a strong desire to orient yourself, to try and make at least some sense of it. But space isn't wholly abstract either. It's real, and it should look like something, ideally something that fits into your own framework of what a place should look like. 
And if you're an American artist or astronomer and you're trying to make sense of some murky visual data from the most advanced telescope in the world at the time, it stands to reason that you'd reach back to a place you're familiar with, to that hauntingly vast and seemingly empty landscape of the American West. Hubble sent us its first images in the 1990s. Today, the James Webb Space Telescope, a hundred times more powerful than Hubble, is sending us even more incredible photos and more visual data that, like its predecessors, still need that interpretive touch of a human being. Cosmic Visions is made possible by the Alexander Grass Humanities Institute at Johns Hopkins University. It's produced by the World According to Sound as part of our series, Ways of Knowing, audio works dedicated to the humanities. This series is edited by Alan Montecilio. Music in the episode provided by John Bartman and our friends, Matt Moss. The World According to Sound is made by Chris Hoff and Sam Harnett.